everyone. Due to some back-end changes taking place over the next few weeks, I'll be dark this week. But that creates an amazing opportunity to share this previous Patreon-exclusive Season 9, Hometown Legends Part 2. Now, as with many Hometown Legend episodes, this one too details some graphic violence toward animals. There's a warning before this particular story, but knowing we have young ones listening, I wanted to put this on everyone's radar. And lastly, before we kick it into gear, last week I hinted at an upcoming special, a live Monsters Among Us event, the MAU Halloween Party. Well, as promised, as details come in, I will keep you informed. So here we go. The live event, which airs on October 30th, 8 p.m. Eastern, will feature guests, stories, prizes, and of course, it will all be hosted by yours truly. But I need a few things from you guys to pull this off. Firstly, I'm in need of five or six people with great stories that they wouldn't mind telling live on video. And if you feel like that's you, well, just shoot me an email and we'll see if we can't work it out. Now, as for the rest of you, start working on those costumes. They have prizes for different costume categories, as well as paranormal trivia. So Friday, October 30th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Get ready to get your sowin' on. And now, without further ado, part two of your Season 9 Hometown Legends finale. Enjoy. Among Us Beyond, number 36. I'll be your guide. My name is Derek Hayes. A good evening, indeed. Welcome to Monsters Among Us Beyond, and to part two of the season nine hometown legend finale. Now I gotta say, although hometown legend submissions are down this year compared to previous seasons, I still have plenty put together this two-part finale. And although this episode will be released eventually, for now, it's all yours. So let's kick this journey off with a visit to the mile-high city of Denver. This is Aaron's Call from Colorado. Hi there, my name is Erin from Denver, calling with a hometown legend. So this isn't as much of an experience or a legend as just a real-life spooky story. So let me explain a little bit about how the neighborhood is set up. So in Denver, there's an area called 
Capitol. One, the Capitol building, just a little bit on the edge of the city, and then it's also on a hill looking over the mountains. And in the 1800s, this was a super affluent neighborhood, had different rich families moving in, like uh, Molly Brown, the Molly Brown House Museum is there. And into the 1920s, it's filled in with different apartments. So now it's this hodgepodge of large, glamorous houses and old apartment buildings. And a lot of the old mansions have been converted into apartments. And so it's this sort of cultural hub. And there's different museums there now. There's the Denver Art Museum, the Denver Public Library. And the largest park in the neighborhood is Cheeseman Park. So Cheeseman Park now, a lot of people use it for jogging, running, picnics, walking their dogs. But originally, it was the Denver City Cemetery. It was built in the mid-1800s, 1858, according to my notes here. And it started to become really crowded with a lot of different religious groups. It became overrun. People weren't taking care of it. People were moving to other cemeteries. And in 1893, the city decided we're going to turn it into a park. So families had 90 days to move their loved ones out of the cemetery. And for families that couldn't do it in 90 days were left with the city option. So the city was moving these bodies and... Of course, at first it was going well, things were being dispersed to other graveyards, and then it started not going so well. There was a lot of things that depended on where the people's families were coming from, which religion they were following in life, um, and then some people were even profiting off of this transfer of bodies, and there was allegations of bodies being trigger warning gross, dismembered into adults put into child coffins just to save money and space. So once the city came in and saw what was going on, the health commissioner was like, this is not going to continue. And they just halted the project halfway through and stopped. They just pulled the headstones off and put more dirt over top, called it a park, planted shrubs literally over some of the graves. And to this day, there's up to 2,000 2,000 bodies under Cheeseman Park and the Botanic Gardens next door. So, yeah, the park's alleged to be uh, haunted. I've never had any experiences there myself. Uh, I know the neighborhood has a lot of history and a lot of really creepy places. So, there you go. A little fun story about Denver. It's a beautiful park if you ever get a chance to go check it out. And there's a lot of people who do ghost hunts at night. Uh, but stay safe out there. Thanks. Bye. Son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies, and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! Does anyone else get 1982's Poltergeist vibes from Aaron's entry? It brings a whole new meaning to the quote, They're here. As in, they're buried right beneath you. Well, you know, Aaron's story got me thinking, relaxing at the park, unknowingly atop hundreds of bodies. That's pretty bad. But what would it be like to learn that your entire apartment complex was built 
over a forgotten cemetery. Tonight, people living in a Tampa apartment complex are being forced to move after a shocking discovery. It turns out they're living on top of a long-lost African-American cemetery. Connie Burton is a 20-year former resident of Robles Park Village on Florida Avenue. This grassy area has the bulk of remains. In that grassy area, using radar, an archaeologist discovers more than 120 possible coffins. It's no surprise to Burton. As a child, uh, we had heard that this used to be a memorial site, but paid very little attention to it because you know what? At the time, we needed housing. The Tampa Bay Times linked the forgotten 1900 Zion Cemetery, likely the first in Tampa for African Americans, to this current day public housing complex. It is time for the city to right this wrong. Yvette Lewis is president of the county's NAACP. Shock was the first emotion. Hurt came next. And the sadness rolled over. Lewis says that for these black pioneers who died in a still-fledgling city, there is no rest. Souls can't even rest because it has been disturbed. Longtime resident Burton commends how the housing authority has handled this revelation. Please, the agency is exploring turning the cemetery site into a memorial. The housing authority will relocate nearly 30 families living at that complex. There could also be more unaccounted for remains as part of the former cemetery extends into private property. That clip comes courtesy of WFTS ABC Action News out of Tampa, Florida. I was not able to find any ghostly experiences reported from this apartment complex. But that doesn't mean they didn't happen. And I can tell you now exactly what residents will blame strange noises on going forward. But on a more serious note, I feel bad for both the living and the dead in this sad situation. And I'm happy to see that the city is doing something to rectify it. Thanks again, Aaron for the submission. Now on each episode of Monsters Among Us Beyond, I try to feature a rebuttal, which is what I call uh, listeners calling in with additional information on a specific call. Well, tonight is no different. But before I play that rebuttal call, I'd like to share with you the original call that it references from the second part of the season 8 finale. Please welcome Jen from Michigan back to the program. In a quick note, this is a condensed version. Refer back to that episode for the full call. Hi, Derek. My name is Jen, and I'm from Michigan. In Michigan, there's a city called Pontiac, and there's a road that runs through Pontiac. In the early 90s, I was probably about 16 we had heard that if you drive down Scripps Road at night and you pass a monastery, that monks will come out and chase you. I had always looked forward to like the day I could go out to Scripps Road because it just sounded so exciting. But I didn't believe it. That just sounds weird. Like, why would monks come out and chase your car? Like, that's just weird. One night, I had the opportunity. The car was full of girls. It was me and like maybe two or three other girls. We got the guts to go out to Scripps Road. I was driving and my car stalled out a lot, but it was dark out. It was probably like one or two in the morning. And I think it was like a light rain, if I remember correctly. 
So I'm going down Scripps Road. I had never been this far down Scripps Road before. And it kind of like turned into dirt. And then it turned into like almost like a land bridge that was a one lane. Like you couldn't turn around or anything. It was all swampy and stuff around it. I remember thinking as we went across this, I was like, I sure hope this isn't true, that the monks come out and chase you because I don't think I can get my car to turn around on this little slit of land. So as soon as we get out of that land bridge, there's a clearing and then there's a building on the left. It's like a long building. It, it was dark. I couldn't really see really. And, you know, everybody in the car was like, there it is, there it is. We stopped and we were just looking at it and we were waiting for the monks to come out. And all of a sudden you could see like this figure and we were like, is that, is that a monk? <laughs> we, because we were all, we just couldn't believe that this story could be true. So we just thought, you know, it was just somebody outside the building or something until it started like running at us. And it was in a long flowyish not like super flowy or anything, but just like, yeah, like a robe. And it started running towards us. And I couldn't turn around because we had just crossed that land bridge thing where it was one lane. I remember my worst nightmare of the night had come true because I had to put this clunker in reverse and hope to God that it didn't stall out when I was going in reverse across this land bridge being a brand new driver with a monk chasing the car, which I wasn't going very fast, but it was a long distance from the building because it was kind of on a hill until, you know, until the monk or whatever it was got to our car. So I threw it in reverse and in my panic, I fight or flight kicked in, I guess, and I reversed perfectly back down this land bridge thing without ditching it in the swamp. The girls said that the monk came right in front of the car and put his hands like on the hood. And I do vaguely remember seeing something like, you know, on the left side of my hood where the, the driver's side would be. The monk like ran all the way down the hill and put his hands on my car, but my car was moving by then. But then there was another one behind him. There was another monk or something behind him running too. So, and we saw that too. They basically just chased us until we put the car in reverse and started getting out of there. I just wonder if anybody remembers it from Pontiac or Waterford. Have a good one. Now up next is Melissa, who has a rebuttal, or more like a endorsement, of Jen's creepy submission. Hi, Derek. This is Melissa. Um, I just listened to the Hometown Legends with the girl that was talking about the Pontiac Waterford, actually kind of more towards Lapeer area of Michigan with Scripps Road and the monks chased her car. I grew up in that area too. She's right on the mark. I had a friend that lived on Scripps Road. When you first turned down Scripps Road, there was a place that made cement lawn ornaments and then a couple houses and then nothing. And he lived in one of those first couple houses. So, you know, we had heard the same thing and we had gone down there as well. I know right what she's talking about with the quote-unquote land bridge. We did see some people down there running around in robes, trying to chase the car. Had a lot of basically the same experience she had, but she said she wanted to know if anybody else that had grown up in the area had heard that or um, had an experience like that. And most definitely, yes. I know of a couple different friends of mine. And I don't know if the place was an actual monastery. I don't know if the people chased cars because 
they had heard the stories too, and you know that's what was supposed to happen. So they were trying to make people's stories come true. Or if it was a monastery and the monks were just mad because people would go down there all the time, I don't know. But we went down there one time, and like she said, when you get far enough down Scripps Road, there's nothing. There's just nothing. There was. I don't know about nowadays, but back in the day, there was nothing. This was like in the 80s. Yeah, we'd get down there far enough, and big long building, and then these figures would start running towards the car. Both times that I was there, one time I didn't see anything, this next time I did, but they never actually made it to the car. But I know I've had friends that have gone down there, and they said yes, they did. They bumped into the car, pounded on the car, uh, people in robes. So her story about what happened on Scripps Road out there in Pontiac area of Michigan, back in the day, I don't know about anymore, but back in the day, yeah, there were people out there that would definitely chase your car. So, thanks, Derek. Thanks, Melissa, for the feedback. I dug a little deeper this time around and might have solved the mystery here, or at the very least, found a new wrinkle to complicate the story. If you follow Scripps Road on Google Maps, past the concrete art shop, through the land bridge, you pretty much come face to face with Scripps Mansion. The mansion, built in 1927 by local businessman William Scripps, was actually sold after his death, then eventually becoming a rehab center for Catholic clergy. So in theory, a bored, jonesing, frustrated and possibly robed clergyman could pass the time by jumping out to scare thrill-seekers. A fun-for-all-involved sort of situation. But in my research, I found more info that might be of interest here. Amelia Earhart actually landed at the airstrip located on the property. Apparently, she and Scripps were some sort of friends. And more on point... According to Lansing's WMMQ-94-4, workers on the mansion grounds often reported supernatural happenings. One report that is repeated ad nauseum is that of a tall, wispy, white, robed figure that roams about the grounds. One upholstery worker arrived at the gates early in the morning to make a repair. As he sat, waiting to be let in, a robed figure rushed at his car, shaking its fists in anger. Before the figure reached the worker's car, however, it simply vanished. So there you go, Jen and Melissa. Not only does that cast some doubt on my rational theory, but it extends the mystery to the grounds of this historic home. So thanks again for sharing that information. I had a good time digging through this one. Now if you have a story you would like to have shared on the program please give the hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Now our next legend of the evening comes to us from a real jokester. This is Stephen's entry from Illinois. Good evening. I'm your hometown legend storyteller, Stephen. Just kidding. As with most submitters on this podcast, I'm a first-time submitter, long-time listener. 
Thank you, Derek, for an awesome podcast. I hope you enjoy this and can use this in your Hometown Legends episode. Now, I live in Illinois, the suburbs of the city. I have a couple stories here, but they both relate to the same location. This first part begins with my brother back in 2004. He is a few years older than me and, as such, had gone to high school before myself. Firstly, I'd like to mention that my brother is a pretty serious person, especially when it comes to the paranormal. He'll mess around, but he's not one to tell a tall tale. This was during May, and as my brother recounted to me, he was driving his date back home from prom night. His date had lived in the area of Barrington, Illinois. Around this area, there's a particular road that is known to have odd events occur. The road is called Cuba Road. Unbeknownst to him, when he was driving down the road late at night, but a clear night, no storms or fog in the area, as he told me, quote-unquote, it was like someone had drug a white sheet clear across the windshield. He said that this had only lasted for a couple of seconds and did not impair his driving. Being he was young and at prom, my brother also said that he was not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. There was another couple in the vehicle with him as well, and all four of the persons had seen the same white sheet drape across the windshield. As fast as it appeared, it had disappeared. My brother and his friends thought this was odd, but continued their journey and made it home safely. A couple weeks later, I had picked up a book from the local bookstore, which had spoken of famous Chicago haunts and those in the surrounding area. Lo and behold, within this book, there was a section on Cuba Road. Now this road is known to have orbs of light that float across the road, a ghost truck that will attempt to run you off the road, or tailgate you only to disappear a few moments later. There's even a rumor that there's an entire house that fades away in front of you off of this road. This is apparently due to the haunted cemetery, which is also located near Cuba Road. This cemetery is called White Cemetery. Fast forward about nine years and I'm still interested in this road. I was armed with my book, a cell phone camera, and some iron will. I would say that through 2011 and 2012, I had been up and down Cuba Road about 25 times. I would often park my car and even walk down the road on the late hours of the night trying to get a glimpse of anything. If anyone lives in the area, I would suggest against this though because the neighbors do not take kindly to those that walk along their property lines. As I was walking along the road, on one of my last trips down Cuba Road, I was with a friend of mine. I was taking pictures of the surrounding area, hoping to see a ghost or get run down by a ghost truck, but as usual there was nothing to be noted. I downloaded a free Spirit Box app on the Apple Store which was just another cheap means of trying to get some evidence or get a rise out of each other. Being that this was a free application, expectations were not high, and the words being spit out by my phone were nothing out of the ordinary or sensible. This was another clear summer night, and just as we had finished walking past White Cemetery and taking photos, which produced nothing odd, the spirit box began to speak. I looked down at the app and noticed that it says the word lights. I began to hope for the balls of light known to show themselves, but no more than a few seconds later the spirit box says enforcement. My friend and I look at each other and assume the application is back to its usual ramblings. A few more seconds go by and the word law appears across the display. These are the last three words we saw and heard because about 10 seconds afterwards, a police vehicle had crested over the hill on the road, pulled over, and the officer began to question us about what we were doing on the side of the road at 12 a.m. We explained our situation and our intent and the officer was kind enough to tell us that he had been patrolling the particular area for years and never saw anything on this apparently haunted road. But he did let us go on our way, and I have not been back since. The odd part about this story, though, is that I feel that something or someone was trying to warn us of the oncoming officer. I could obviously be grasping at straws, but it was the only time I had experienced a close selection of words that had described something similar. I had kept this application on my phone and even brought it to the famously haunted Congress Hotel in Chicago, only to have nothing odd happen. Well, that's my hometown legend, and I hope you all enjoyed it. Love my Mao Magnet, and thank you, as always, for the awesome work you do, Derek. Bye-bye. You know, I've heard that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. 
so thanks, Stephen. Cuba Road is certainly on my radar. I might have featured it on a previous episode, in fact. But I gotta be honest, after all these years, all the stories start to blend together. Especially the hometown legends. But, with reports of phantom cars, ghostly semis, spectral funeral processions, and much more, it's no surprise that this legend was shared tonight. In fact, someone even made a low-budget movie about the road. I've linked to the trailer in tonight's show notes. But this story reminds me of an encounter with the police that I had while searching for a haunted location. About 20 years ago, a few of us were pulled over by the local boys while trying to find Lady Bend Hill near Morristown, Ohio. Apparently driving incredibly slow, with high beams on, and three passengers shining bright flashlights out the windows, is frowned upon in that jurisdiction. Well, eventually they let us go, but in not so many words, told us to go straight home, which for us was the next county over. If he had a story, he also wasn't sharing. Thanks again, Stephen, for the entry. I have a newfound soft spot for these haunted roads. And speaking of haunted roads, up next we jump on Route 66 and take it all the way west, where Roan has a story waiting at our next stop, sunny, beautiful California. Howdy, my name is Roan. I'm calling you from San Jose, California. There's a little uh, hometown legend that I'm surprised no one has talked to you about on your show, since it is relatively close to you and that hometown legend is hicks road so if you grow up in san jose california you hear about this place it's a little backcountry road in the rural southern part of the city actually it isn't technically part of the city it's part of the county leading to the old air force radar station that you can see from anywhere in the valley if you grow up in San Jose, taking a nighttime drive on Hicks Road is kind of a rite of passage. But why? Well, there's been a lot of strange stories that surround the place, mainly that there are some albinos who live out there who may or may not be dangerous, who may or may not give you trouble if you run into them. Now, supposedly there was a colony of albinos that moved out there in the 19th century, but who among them are actually there now, well, that's not really clear. The uh, legends have ranged from children hiding from cars because they're ashamed of their appearance to people actually coming out with guns and taking shots at them. If you believe some people, it's just meth cooks guarding their territory. All I know is there is a park at the end of that road and it is more or less just a windy hill road, but it's a great local legend. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Roan. Now, before we dive into Roan's call, a quick public service announcement. The last time a similar story about a colony of albinos hiding in the fringes of society was shared, I received a few emails criticizing my inclusion of the call, as it is derogatory toward people suffering from the disorder. Well, let me start by saying... I agree, the group is certainly demonized in many of these stories, blamed for things that they didn't do or simply didn't even happen. 
Despite all that, I'm still choosing to include Rome's story. But I will give the caveat that views expressed by submitters do not necessarily fall in line with mine. And I should also add that views of these stories often don't fall in line with the teller as well. And if these tragic stories are part of a town's folklore, I think it's important to share in the right context. So in closing, I do not approve of the treatment of people in most of these legends. But they are, after all, just legends. Now all that said, I'll refrain from comment on Roan's entry and instead thank him for his submission. We truly appreciate the entry. Now we have more controversial material coming up. So what do you say we cleanse our palate with something a little more cuddly? Rihanna, please help us out. Hi, my name's Rihanna. I'm calling from Washington State. My hometown is Walla Walla, so this is for the hometown legend segment. And of course, calling from the Pacific Northwest, mine is about Bigfoot. So back in the 70s, there was a big run of Bigfoot sightings. There's a watershed area that you could win a lottery to go hunting in. And some like well-respected doctor went up there and said that he saw a Bigfoot. I mean, I don't know why he would say it unless he actually did. It's not like you're going to get any credibility. If anything, you were just mocked, especially back in the 70s. My own mom was out riding her horse in the countryside out in the middle of nowhere, like a farmhouse on 100 acres, kind of nowhere. And she said she could see kind of like a hunched over, really big figure walking into the tree line by the creek. And then her horse even freaked out a little bit, too, and she got out of there. More recently, we have a store that opened up in Walla Walla that specializes in Sasquatch merchandise. They have a podcast called Destination Sasquatch. And, yeah, that is it. Thanks for the podcast. Thank you, Rihanna. Anyone that knows anything about the big guy knows that he's a big deal in the state of Washington. As KGW... NBC News 8 out of Portland can tell us. If you ask anybody, they say Bigfoot's an animal roaming the woods on two legs. This one comes from Washington State up at uh, Grays Harbor County north of here. That's Dr. Jeff Meldrum. He's a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. These are, uh, these are knuckle prints. And he's a big believer in Bigfoot. Yeah, from the footprints to films, hair analysis that I've conducted, it all points to a, a physical entity. He gets a ton of attention and so um, we were like what could we do and we just decided let's throw a Bigfoot festival. The Squatch Fest started four years ago to attract tourism to Longview. In the first year it outdid expectations and has doubled in size. I think it's the mystery of Bigfoot, I think. I, I don't really know, I think it is. I think it's just that mystery, just like any other mystical kind of creature that people think about. So if you wanna see the footprints, you wanna see those knuckle prints, the Come festival on. again goes till eight o'clock tonight and it also picks up again tomorrow all day. They've doubled in size. They've uh, grown from 1,500 the first year to about 3,000 and they have lines out the door and around the block. As if that's not enough to show commitment to their resident cryptid. Washington State Senator Ann Rivers has been trying for years to get Bigfoot featured on the Washington State license plates. The last I heard of her efforts was 2018, 
so I'm guessing the dream of some awesome plates is now on hold. So thanks again, Rihanna, for reminding us that even our heavy hitters need some hometown legend love. Okay, brace yourselves, guys. This next one is quite brutal. If you have kids listening, this next one contains mention of animal abuse, so proceed with caution. That said, please welcome our anonymous caller from the state of Idaho to the program. Hey Derek, I'm calling in for your hometown legend episode. I don't know if I've missed it or if it's still coming up. I'm from a small town in Idaho called Moreland, Idaho. Little town outside of Blackfoot. There's a bunch of little communities around. Anyways, there's these two well-known canals that run through Moreland, Fingree, Snake River area that's there. There are two canals. They're called the Twin Canals. They run parallel east to west next to each other. Well, in high school, we would always go and swim in these canals. Uh, there's a bridge that goes over both of them, north and south. And, well, the, the bridge that is to the south is the one that we'd always jump off of. We'd never jump off the north one. I never knew why, but everybody that we were with that was older than us, you know, this is there. Uh, I was a freshman, sophomore in high school. Um, but I had heard stories about this well before then, but I never found out exactly why we never jumped off there. Well, these canals were fairly deep, about 15 feet deep. They were pretty slow moving, the north one a little bit faster than the south one, so I always thought it was a current. You know, you, you don't jump off the north canal because it's faster. Anyways, going into my sophomore year, I had an English teacher named Mr. Baldwin. Well, one day he caught us in class talking about going swimming up to school. And he said, be sure to go in the South Canal. Well, that was my opportunity to ask, why don't we jump off the North Canal? And it was at that point, everybody in the class got filled in as to a legend that is around Moreland. It's not a good legend. So anybody who is not like, I mean, I don't like it either, but like cannot even stand the thought of hearing about animal abuse Fast forward through authors among us a few places. I'm sorry. There was this kid back in the day who he was an outcast, didn't have many friends, was just really into himself and not, he didn't put himself out there. Anyways, he was caught taking neighborhood cats and sticking them in a cart, like a shopping cart that you'd go to Walmart or Costco and push around. He put a bunch of cats in there, welded it shut, and would push them into the North Canal, drowning them. Well, the way that this came about was every fall, these canals drained. Well, passerbys in the cart. Inside the cart, they would find cat carcasses, cat bones, um, that did not move through the cart with the current. Well... The kid was caught that next spring doing this. He had done it for a few years at the least. Well, now going forward, people stopped swimming in that North Canal because um, another high school student had jumped into the North Canal. When he came up out of the canal, after being under several minutes, people were freaking out. They were calling 911. They thought he had drowned. 
he came up probably 50 yards past the bridge, which is quite a distance without drowning. When he came up, his friends rushed to him. Uh, they got him out of the water, and he was covered in what looked like cat scratches. Now, nobody believes that it was the cat scratches, because who would? Well, he happened to be allergic to cats. He died two days later in the hospital because of an allergic reaction to cats. I don't know really what to make of it. I don't know if it's just a coincidence. I don't know if my teacher was lying to us to keep us out of the North Canal. That's a pretty elaborate scheme, if you ask me, to keep kids from swimming out of the North Canal. You know, just tell them, no, it's deep, it's fast, stay out of it. And he was pretty serious about this. And he told us their names, both of the, the boys' names, that I just can't recall. Anyways, this year was probably about 2008, 2009, where I was told this story. And this cat incident happened back years before that, many, many years. I don't recall what day or time or year exactly that he told us this had happened. But, yeah, so that's the story the cats of the North Twin Bridges Canal and the boy who would torment them and the boy who died from apparent cat allergies from being scratched while he was under the water in the Northside Canal for quite some time. That's my story. I hope you can use it. Thanks. Have a good night. Thank you, caller. But I gotta be honest here. I don't know if the cops would be called right away if I caught someone doing something like this. It's beyond cruel to both the animals and their owners. But the details on the back end were very interesting. I wonder if the victim was able to explain what happened while he was under. Whatever's going on down there, it sounds nightmarish. I can only hope the little psychopath they caught experienced something similar. Thanks again, caller. Now excuse me while I take a break to go visit my two cats. Our next entry is a little less soul-crushing, I promise. Please welcome Van from Iowa back to the program. Hi Derek, this is Van from Iowa. Uh, I've called in before uh, with a possible UFO sighting and another call uh, where I remained anonymous because it wasn't my story and I wanted to protect the privacy. Uh, but I've been listening to the podcast for a couple months now. I started at the very beginning and I am about halfway through season seven, so I'm catching up, uh, which I'm kind of sad about because I love binging the law on that work. But anyway, I've heard you do several hometown legend segment and I had a hometown legend for you. So I grew up in a small town in eastern Iowa called Anamosa, and about 11, 12 miles outside of Anamosa, there's a tiny town called Scotch Grove, Iowa, and just outside of Scotch Grove, Iowa, is said to be one of the most haunted buildings in America, and that is Edinburgh Manor, and the most famous permanent resident of Edinburgh Manor, known only as the Joker. So Edinburgh Manor, it has been investigated by uh, Ghost Adventures from the Travel Channel, and I'll touch more on that later, uh, Paranormal Investigators in Milwaukee, uh, and a bunch of other paranormal places. It's uh, said to be one of the most haunted places in the country. Uh, but before I tell you about the hauntings, I want to give you a little bit of history on it, uh, just because the history is just as creepy as the hauntings are. 
Uh, anyway, in uh, June of 1840, there was actually a small town called Edinburgh, which the manor is named after, and Edinburgh was the county seat of Jones County, where the manor is located. The manor was originally built to be a courthouse, but after it was complete, the county seat moved, and so it was turned into a poorhouse. Now, a poorhouse is like a house that is government-run to support the poor and needy, uh, where they work the land in exchange for a room and board. But really, that was just the government's front. It was actually an unofficial insane asylum. That's where the incurably insane were sent. In the time that it was a poorhouse, over 80 people died. This is a legend. This is all history here. The original Edinburgh Manor was demolished in 1910 and rebuilt in 1911, which is the building that still stands today. And it doubled as a retirement home and an insane asylum until 2010 when it was shut down. At the time when it was shut down in 2010, over 100 people had died in it, and there has been ghostly activity reported ever since. Uh, before I give you some of the specifics, some of the more vague stuff, uh, people have heard uh, footsteps, door slamming, there's been singing, talking, toys moving on their own. There have been three particular apparitions that have been spotted multiple times by multiple people. The first one is the ghost of a little girl that is said to haunt the first floor. She's been heard laughing, singing, and crying for her mom. There's been the apparition of a woman in white seen on the staircases by the second floor, and perhaps the most famous. It's a figure that has been seen multiple times and is known only as the Joker. The spirit of the Joker is said to live in the basement, and it is said to be the ghost of a man who killed himself in the padded room, which is located in the basement. People who claim to have seen the Joker say he's a tall, dark, skinny figure, not unlike the Thunder Man from the video game. This would be very malicious. He has uh, been reported to physically attack people, choking them and leaving scratches on their neck, and this is actually captured on video, uh, which I'll touch on here in a minute. But... One of the most famous things he's done, this has been recorded multiple times, uh, throwing old plates across the room, because that's the thing about Edinburgh Manor. Even though it was shut down and abandoned, everything is still there. Medical records, uh, bedrooms are still set up, dishes are still fully stocked, everything is still there. It makes it all the more creepy. As I mentioned earlier, Ghost Adventures, a famous show on the Travel Channel, actually came and investigated Edinburgh Manor, and the video is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I'll send you an email with a link to the video and just pictures of Edinburgh Manor. In the documentary that they've produced, uh, in their preliminary investigation, uh, somebody was walking through the hallways uh, when they said that they felt fingers on their neck and choking sensation. And uh, this was captured on camera, and you can actually see scratches appear on the person's neck and slowly start to fade. Um, another thing that happened, they were, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, as they were investigating, they heard uh, doors slamming. They uh, they ca- they caught the, a shadowy figure on camera, uh, and perhaps the most scary thing, in my opinion, uh, they were in the basement where the Joker is said to reside. Uh, and they were trying to communicate with it, and you can, in on camera, you can actually see uh, some of their equipment moving without anybody touching it. And uh, when they ask uh, for proof that the spirit is in the room, there's silence, and then uh, a plate is hurled across the room uh, from a dark corner where no one was standing, and then a plate shatters right next to someone's head. Uh, but yeah, that's that's just uh, some of the specifics of what's been going on at Edinburgh Manor, but. Uh, it truly is a creepy place. Uh, e- even though it's closed down now and privately owned, uh, it is open for tours. You can actually book overnight stays. 
which I don't know why <laughs> why you would want to do that. Uh, but and for some reason, um, the doors are never locked, and so it has become kind of a rite of passage for teenagers in the area to actually break into Edinburgh Manor at night. Um, now I am <laughs> I am terrified of anything that is uh, scary or ghostly. Uh, I, I scare easily, so of course I would never do that. But I have friends who have actually done that, and they've actually spent the night in Edinburgh Manor. And uh, what they see, it's they they don't even like to talk about it, but they've said that they've seen stuff. Uh, and I, I fully believe them, honestly. Now, uh, full disclosure, I am a skeptic. I don't, even though the stuff spooks me, I don't really believe in ghosts. I definitely believe like in other cryptids that are discussed on the show, but in terms of ghosts and hauntings, I am quite skeptical. But what I can say is that I've actually been in Edinburgh Manor before. I was there in the holiday season of 2009, just several months before it shut down. Uh, I was um, I was singing to some of the residents to try to brighten up their holiday. Uh, but while while I was in there, um, like some places can have a kind of a weird atmosphere, just can put your finger on it. Uh, but this was beyond that. Like I, I was in there and I wanted to get out every second I was in there. I did, I felt something. I don't know what it was, but the only way I could describe it, it just felt like pure evil. And like I'm, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I know it sounds dramatic, like a horror movie, but it just felt off. Uh, but anyway, that's the story of the Joker and Edinburgh Manor, uh, which is the most haunted place in Iowa and said to be one of the most haunted places in the entire country. Uh, if you're brave enough to uh, try to explore it for yourself, as I said, and it's never locked up, <laughs> going at your own risk. Uh, I love the, I absolutely love the podcast. It's uh, my favorite podcast out there. Uh, I binge it every single day at work and it turns a uh, not as boring day into a good one. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Van. The town I went to college in also had a poorhouse that was converted into a museum. I remember the day I stumbled upon it. I found the potter's field first, a cemetery filled with now nameless bodies. Each grave had a single stone post with a number. If my memory serves correct, there was a plaque explaining that the list that corresponded to those numbers was lost in a fire. Obviously, I came back to visit several times, and eventually I befriended some of the folks that ran the museum, and they allowed me to shoot several student films within its walls. In fact, I even shot a ghost hunting documentary with several of my friends. But unfortunately, one of those friends was tragically killed by a drunk driver a few weeks after we shot the footage. For years, I couldn't bring myself to watch it. But now that 16 or 17 years have passed, I might dust it off and see if there's anything there worth editing down. But yeah, I actually dug up the episode of Ghost Adventures fan referenced, and I've linked to the full episode in the show notes. But here is a short snippet of Zach describing some of the activity they expect to encounter. We're in Scotch Grove, Iowa, and right now we are out in the middle of nowhere looking for the Edinburgh Manor. 
formerly known as the Jones County home, built in 1850. Guys, what's interesting about this location, not only are there 100 documented deaths, but this place housed the incurably insane, the poor, the disabled. This place just shut down in 2010. It is a cauldron of violent, dark energy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, creatures of the night, we're down to our final call of season nine. And did I save a barn burner for you? Now, trust me, Scott's call from California is on fire. Hi, Derek. My name's Scott. I'm in Central California. I live in a small town, and uh, there's a uh, legend of a boy that could start fires just by looking at things. I wanted to call the story in for your uh, Hometown Legends episode. Anyway, this started in 1886. His name was Willie Bow, and he was 12 years old. And according to the newspapers, he could start fires at a glance. One day in class, he started the Madison School on fire five times. Prior to that, he caused 9,000 in damage to farm equipment. After all this happened, he was, quote, banished to the cottonwoods by his family after the fires continued and the insurance actually contacted them and said they wouldn't insure any building that he was in. So the story goes that people don't really know what happened to him after he was banished to the cottonwoods, but the story was in newspapers all across America at the time and uh, was quite a sensation. I'm part of the local uh, historical society and recently I spoke to a man who did some town research back in the 1970s and he claims to have actually met the elderly Willie Bo at the time but unfortunately he didn't get any information about what had happened during the time of the fires or afterwards. Anyway I thought that was an interesting uh, story for your hometown legends. Thanks a lot. Short and sweet. Thank you Scott. For the entry. The ability Willie Bow was said to possess is known as pyrokinesis, and although there are many stories about the phenomenon, no real evidence seems to exist. You know, aside from 1984's Firestarter, starring a young Drew Barrymore, a Stephen King adaptation, I might add, and I believe the source of the word pyrokinesis. But none of that stops these rumors from persisting. In fact, there were reports making their rounds as recent as 2011. Emma Tablate. She lives in the province of Western Visayas in the Philippines, and she has scared just about everyone in town with her unique ability called pyrokinesis. That's the ability to start a fire with your mind. People began getting scared when fires were breaking out wherever Emma went. Some people believe that she was starting the fires with matches. However, stories were spreading that Emma was starting the fire with her mind. To protect the town, the police in San Jose cordoned off her home and made her stay there. Well, not long after the mayor of the town visited the home to see if the stories about Emma were true, Emma told him that something in the home would catch on fire, and immediately after she made the statement, a shirt in the house caught fire. It wasn't long after that the news about Emma got out. Not only can she predict when a fire is going to happen, she can also cause an object to burst into flames by saying sunog, which is the Filipino word for fire. 
According to her family and friends, they're not afraid of her. They know that she would never try to hurt them. That snippet comes courtesy of Factverse on YouTube. There are several articles featuring Emma M.M. or Rose's story. Believe it or not, I found all three names credited to the little girl. In addition, I also found a pair of clips from four news sources. The clips are not in English, or I would share them with you here. However, I've linked to them in the show notes, and I highly recommend you check them out if any of this interests you at all. In my opinion, one video makes the entire thing look like a hoax, while the other shows second-degree burns on the three-year-old's legs and feet. So it appears that something is going on. But further reports claim that her family held a baptism for her. And of course, during the ritual, several items mysteriously burst into flames. But the trail seems to end in 2011. So either the baptism was successful, she grew out of her ability, or most likely, the parents grew tired of the attention and gave up the ruse. But then again, those burn marks are pretty convincing. Let me know what you think. Thank you again, Scott, for sharing your entry. I had not heard of this case, but I'm really glad that I had. And I'll certainly keep my ear open for further Willy Post sagas. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us Beyond is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. This episode's Monsters Among Us Beyond theme song was written and performed by Eric Leppard. And that terrifying score you hear, let's music. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for all the support. I'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Have a good night. Now, I normally don't play a secret call on these Monsters Among Us Beyond episodes, but it's been an amazing season, and I absolutely love you guys. So here you go. From my old stomping grounds, Tuscaroras County, Ohio, please welcome Ben to tonight's special episode. Hi, Derek. This is Ben from Newcomerstown, Ohio. I uh, love the podcast. I love the call-in format. I listen to it every day on my way to work, so you know, keep up the good work, man. Uh, I'm calling in with a story that's kind of part hometown legend, part missing time, part paranormal maybe. There's a lot that happened, so I'll get into it. Uh, this happened back in 2010. I was 18, and there's a, there's a local legend about a woman named Mary Stuckham. This woman was, you know, she was supposedly a witch, and she was married. She lived, I think, in the like the late 1800s or early 1900s. She had several kids. I don't remember the exact number, but several of her kids started disappearing, and the town people tried her husband and found him guilty of their murders. So they hanged him, 
then Mary Stuckham, out of for revenge, I guess, started killing her own kids. So that you know, she was apprehended and then she was executed. But the legend goes, I think one or two more of her children died after this, you know, from mysterious causes. And they allegedly exhumed her body and decapitated her and then buried her head in a different location. And then supposedly uh, no more of her children, you know, the rest of her children lived to to old age after that. Uh, I think I've done a little bit of research into it, and I'm pretty sure it's all been debunked. I don't think, you know, she was just a normal woman. I don't think there was any ever any records of any of those trials or disappearances or murders. But there's, uh, there's a gravestone you know, with her name on it. There's an actual old, like, pre-industrial graveyard outside of a town called West Lafayette, probably about 15 minutes from my house. And it's out all these old, creepy hall roads. The thing among high schoolers in the area to go out there and, you know, a lot of them will party and, you know, go out there at dark. And there was, you know, there's stories of people's cars not starting um, or seeing women, uh, a woman in the rearview mirror, uh, handprints in the car and things like that. I don't know anybody personally that, you know, I, I've never heard any credible stories about anything like that. But And it's actually kind of sad because a lot of the grave markers have been desecrated, you know, and it's, you know, I like to see that. But w- when I was just out of high school, we all decided one night that we would go out there. And I'd never been there before and seen it, so I decided to go. We met at my friend Dylan's house uh, around 11 or 11.30 at night, and there was four of us there, and we all loaded in my buddy's Subaru out back he had, and we rode together. Two of my friends were totally drunk when I showed up. And they, they were already gone. They had drank all the beer, so I was totally sober. And my other friend, Dylan, that uh, whose house we met up at, he doesn't drink, so he was totally sober. So two of the four of us were clear-minded. And then we went and picked up my friend Dylan's older brother, and he also doesn't drink, so he was sober. And then we all headed out from his house. So on our way out, first, once we got, these hall roads are really creepy at night. You know, they're dirt and you just got dense woods around you on either side and, you know, all these big hills and things. The, the moonlight doesn't even really penetrate down into there, depending on what time of year you go. Uh, but on our way out, there was uh, down, a small tree down the road. Um, so that was kind of a, you know, precursor, I guess. But the five of us were able to drag it out of the way, out of the way enough to get around. And we got around that, and we finally got up there and shut the car off. And we got out, and we were all, you know, taking pictures with our phones, looking for orbs and things like that. I took pictures of where her grave marker is supposed to be. Nothing happened that we saw, you know, nothing strange, no noises we heard or anything like that. But my friend's older brother, who had actually, you know, he'd been in a lot of trouble with the law and gotten a lot of fights and stuff in school. He was, he was a really tough guy. He all of a sudden, we were we were standing kind of by the wood line together taking pictures and stuff and he's like man we gotta go he's like i don't i don't want to be here anymore and he just looked really serious and grimace we all loaded back up in the car and the car started with no problem we didn't see anybody in the rear view or anything like that uh, we didn't really talk much a whole lot on the on the ride home to drop off his brother and you know, we we uh, discussed maybe making some future plans to travel to some other places now once we got out of this hall road the, the mood lightened a lot so well, we dropped him off, and uh, we headed home. I was driving the car, and my my other sober friend, Dylan, was in the front passenger seat. 
my other two friends were passed out in the back. They were passed out cold. So it's just the two of us. And, you know, we're, we start talking about all kinds of paranormal stuff and, you know, pretty much everything under the sun in that sort of category. And I don't remember looking at the clock at this time. We just, it's, you know, it was already almost midnight when we started this whole adventure. So it's really early in the morning. No other cars are out, but uh, it's a full moon. It's, you know, it's really bright. We get close to uh, an intersection on the way to my friend's house and there's there's a river that runs alongside this road and there's a four-way intersection and we turn right to go over the river but these two roads run parallel along the river it's not uncommon for that area to get really dense fog uh, especially like in the between the spring and fall but you can see there's a long straight stretch and as I'm sitting at that light it's crystal clear you know for at least a mile or better but the light turns green and we go across the bridge onto the other side of the river. And this is on, you're on your way outside of town now. So you're, there's corn, there's nothing but cornfield on the one side and the river on your left. And we're driving and this, there's a, there's one sharp left turn after you cross the bridge and then it's a, a light right turn. And then there's a straight stretch for about a mile. Right before that slight right turn, we just hit this, really dense fog i mean to the point where i cannot see i could barely just see grass on the left side of the road off of the road that's that's about as far as i could see maybe in front of me 30 or 40 feet i guess maximum so i slowed down and we're going probably 40 40 miles an hour at this point i think the speed limit is 55 uh, but normally after this like mile straight stretch Right before the end of it, there's a road on your right-hand side. If you go past that, you come onto a slight hill with another turn, and my friend's house sits right on the top of that hill. The whole drive normally from the bridge to my friend's driveway might take realistically two minutes, uh, you know, tops, maybe three. You know, taking into consideration that we were going 40 miles an hour, and I remember looking at the speedometer, and also I have to add that while we were talking about this, spooky stuff on the drive my friend was playing I think it was stairway to heaven backwards you know because supposedly there's subliminal verses in it so that's playing on the radio while this is happening we hit this fog and you know it was i remember thinking it was kind of strange that i didn't see any on the other side of the river but i didn't i guess i didn't really pay that much consideration to it so we're driving and still talking i'm just being a little more cautious because of the limited visibility and, you know, we're talking and talking and, and time keeps going on. And I, I remember starting to think like, man, this is, seems like we've been on this straight stretch for quite a while. And I remember the, the road being perfectly straight, which, you know, for the most part it is, but it's a state route. So there's some very, you know, small variations here and there, but this is just perfectly straight. And I can't see anything besides the road right in front of me, anything at all. I mean, I can't even kind of make out the trees to my left which are 10 yards off the road where, you know where they start but I'm driving and driving and, and we stopped talking at this point and we're both just kind of focusing on the road as I'm sitting here starting to get more and more concerned about how long we've been on this straight stretch my, my friend Dylan beside me pauses the, the music which is still that stairway to heaven and I remember saying Jesus you know is 258 longer than ever or is it just me you know I was like, man, I was just, just thinking the same thing. 
And even after saying this, it, it felt like another at least 20 seconds has gone by. And I'm still driving, 40, you know, right around 40 miles an hour. And then all of a sudden I see that road to the right. And then just after that, the fog breaks and we hit that small hill and it's just crystal clear again. You know, and that's, it's a very small hill. So we're still right beside the river. So the fact that the fog just cleared is, doesn't, doesn't make sense. And it was just like a wall, a solid wall. But we, we pull into his driveway and his, his house is very, it's an old farmhouse. So it's creepy anyway. There's a big, you know, big forest off to the, to the right. Uh, but we get out and we're like, man, that was, you know, crazy. Well, his house kind of sits on a hill and his driveway, the, the road takes a sharp left right after his house and his driveway actually horseshoes around so if you're standing on the back side of his house away from the road you know you, you can't see the road but where we had parked we could see that straight stretch after that sharp turn and as we're getting out of the car we hear like these three loud thumps it sounded like a, a hammer hitting wood my first instinct was well, there's a lot of Amish in the area and I, for some reason I started thinking like a horse like a horse's hooves on the, the concrete road but I, I said we could see that straight stretch, and there was absolutely nothing. There was no no lights of any kind or you know any person. And it was a clear night, so I could you know it was almost like daylight. The moon was so bright, and we kept hearing it several more times. And then it started sounding like maybe you know a hammer on a, a post, which he actually owns a farm, so he's got fence posts all along that road. He has hay fields on either side of it. But once again, we could see everything, and there was nothing there. So we we just you know hurry up and we all get inside and we sit down in the living room and start talking about it. And, you know, our, our friends that have woken up at this point don't really believe anything we're saying. And they just pass right back out. But as we're sitting there talking, he pulls out his phone and unlocks it and his music starts playing. And he hurries up and hits pause. It's like an old Android, you know, once again, it's 2010. We start talking about the time that all of this took place. And you could see into his kitchen from his living room and the clock on the oven said, Three, like 3.43 a.m. When he looked at his phone, when he, when he unlocked the music, the timestamp into the song was three minutes and 34 seconds. So whenever he originally paused it, whenever he commented on how long the drive on 258 was, it was three minutes and 33 seconds into the song. And after accounting for all the time we were talking and everything, it would have been right around 3.33 in the morning while we were on that straight stretch of that road. And I, I've I've heard a lot of rumors about that, or uh, stories about that being the devil's hour, you know, for different reasons. Like the the veil into the spiritual world is supposed to be the thinnest at that point. Um, I don't really know about any of that, but I know I, I was getting to the point where I was I was getting I felt kind of helpless, I guess, more than anything else. Like I I had no choice but to be on that road. Like I couldn't get off of that that straight stretch. Um, I don't know what to make of it. I've thought about it many times. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about most things. Uh, and I, I really just, I don't know what happened that night. I don't know if the two were related. Maybe, you know, the, because of where we, where we went. Uh, I don't know. But once again, I love the show, man. Thanks for taking the time to listen to my story and uh, keep up the good work. Bye. Thank you, Ben. I actually grew up about 40 minutes from the area Ben is talking about, and although I'm familiar with the name Mary Stockham, I was happy to learn more about the legend. But having grown up in the area, 
there's another legend I associate with the small hamlet of Newcomerstown. Postboy Hollow, or Postboy Road. I've pulled the following write-up from OhioExploration.com. The hollow surrounding Postboy Road is said to be haunted by the road's namesake. Back in the day when the mail was delivered by foot or horse, the postboy was on his way to a local tavern that served as a mail exchange point. While walking through the hollow, a thief emerged from behind a tree, murdered the postboy, and stole the mail he was carrying. The murderer was later seen in the tavern with the parcels, before he disappeared for good. The ghost of the postboy is now said to haunt a hollow. Many homes in the area report odd happenings that are attributed to the postboy's ghost. There have also been recent reports of hearing unexplainable oldies music coming from the nearby woods. Now that is one of the older regions of the state, so it's no surprise the area is also saturated with the supernatural. Thank you again, Ben, for sharing. And thank you guys for all the support. Keep it spooky. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.